glad you made it over here. Like I said, we will be here again next week. Appreciate you uh, flexing so well. So anybody else you know that doesn't know that we're here, let them know, please. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. And obviously we don't have any to pass out to you today, but it is on the back of your bulletin if you want to turn on the back of your bulletin. We're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. It's printed on the back of your bulletin as well. This passage is is called one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand and to interpret and to explain. And I think it's important for us to get a grasp on it because it will help us for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning we're going to slow down. We're going to look at these four verses. And it's going to call for endurance on your part to pay attention. And uh, I just want to tell you, I, I really struggled this week in studying this. It's probably the most time I've put into a sermon in a long time and trying to understand these four verses and how it plays out within context and the history of, of the world and how this plays out in the Bible. And I, and I really struggled to grasp these myself. And I was just struggling all week. And last night I had one of those really encouraging dreams where I'm preaching and one of my professors from my old school was talking about how terrible it was. So that really got me pumped up about today. I cannot wait to see how it goes. All right. So it's going to be a lot of studying today. So you got to stay with it. All right. Got the temperature really cold for you. All right. Here we go. Matthew 5. Let's stand up and read this. Matthew 5. Starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and we are finding ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount started out with the Beatitudes, which talks about the kingdom standards, the kingdom norm of those living under the reign of the king. And as you live under the kingdom standards and the kingdom norms, you will have a certain impact upon this world. You will have impact as distinct salt and engaging light where the world will respond to you with either persecution or giving glory to your Father who is in heaven. And throughout the sermon, we will see that Jesus is calling for good works. Do not have anything against good works because Jesus is continually calling for good works that those within the kingdom will display good works in their lives, that you have been changed on the inside to display good works on the outside. But the obedience that you're being called to is not disconnected from the past. You see, one of the accusations that was being brought against Jesus that you'll see it time and time again in the Gospels is that Jesus is downplaying the Old Testament law. You know, he he gets accused of that all the time because he's always fighting with the religious gurus of the day, right? And they say, well, surely you must be against the Old Testament law. And his, his followers 
are, are wondering if he's against the Old Testament law also because he looks so different than the rest of the religious leaders of the day and his teaching is so radical that perhaps even his disciples thought that Jesus was here to get rid of the Old Testament and start something entirely new on this brand new mission. And many today in the world have a misunderstanding of the Old Testament and Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. And if you just ask someone on the street whether they have a lot of knowledge or not, they will generally tell you the Old Testament is strict and rigid and Jesus is so loving and free. Maybe some of us have this misunderstanding of the Old Testament that it's old (laughs) and it's not new and the old is bad and strict and terrible, but when we come to Jesus, it's something so new. And and we kind of feel like we we may be stuck with this choice. Should I go with the Old Testament or should I go with Jesus? What is it for the Christian? Do we go with the old or do we go with the new in in Jesus? And here's the answer biblically. If you're asking that question, do I go with the Old Testament or go with Jesus? Here's the answer. You go with Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's a good way to explain it. You go with Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that basically means is that the entire Old Testament is legit. The entire Old Testament is valid when seen in the reality of the fulfillment in Christ. Which means, as believers, we interpret and we apply apply all the Old Testament in light of its fulfillment in Christ. And I believe this leads to just a radical devotion. A devotion that is so committed to Christ who has fulfilled the Old Testament and it's going to spill out into obedience and it's an obedience that you're going to be called to again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. It was an obedience that was lacking in Jesus' day and it's an obedience that is lacking within the church of our day. It's important that we hit this little section before we move on. It's key to our obedience rooted in the fulfillment of Christ. So let's go ahead and jump in, go through these verses, and look at a Jesus who fulfilled the Old Testament. Let's start with verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I mean, just because Jesus has it out every now and then with the religious leaders doesn't mean that he came to get rid of the Old Testament. Don't think that Jesus came to just cut it all off and start this brand new thing. He came to not get rid of the law, the prophets, but to fulfill them. When you see that terminology there, the law or the prophets, you see it there in verse 17, just think of that as a reference to all the Old Testament. And as Jesus is walking around Israel of his day, people are kind of wondering, what's your angle, teacher? What's your angle on the Old Testament? Are you kind of like the Pharisees who want to interpret the law to this minute detail? Are you kind of like some of these rebellious leaders who are trying to throw away the Old Testament and start this brand new thing? What is your angle? What camp are you in? Are you here to get rid of the Old Testament? And, and, and you know what Jesus' answer is? And, and let me just tell you, Jesus' answer would be so heretical if it wasn't true. I mean, if this weren't true, it'd be so heretical. This is Jesus' angle, right? It's like this. I didn't come 
to get rid of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is all about me. I'm not here to throw it out. Are you kidding me? The whole thing points to me. If, if that were not true, it'd be heretical, right? And that's what he's saying. The whole Old Testament is fulfilled in him. All the law and all the prophets throughout the time have been anticipating Jesus. And now that he is on the scene, then the Old Testament is in the process of being fulfilled, or here's a better word perhaps, realized in him. I think it's helpful if you think in terms of this, of anticipation, realization. Douglas Moo is a professor. He, he really sums it up well. The concept Old Testament is anticipating, 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 and the realization is in Jesus Christ. That when he shows up on the scene, everything that the Old Testament has been anticipating and pointing to is fulfilled in the reality of himself when he arrives on this earth. So keep that in mind. Anticipation, 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 realization. He is the realization of the Old Testament and all its promises. Well, what does that look like? like I mean, we can say that, but what does that mean in the details? For starters, this is what you're most familiar with. Many of you are familiar with the idea that the Old Testament prophesies something, predicts something, anticipates something, and then Jesus fulfills it in the New Testament. For example, uh, every Christmas you hear these stories all the time. We just started with Matthew this past December looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. And what did uh, Matthew say? He kept on using the word fulfillment. So Jesus will be born in Bethlehem to a virgin, Emmanuel. Uh, when he escapes from Herod into Egypt, he'll be called out of Egypt. All, all that stuff's talked about in the Old Testament. So you have these prophecies and predictions of the Old Testament, and they're fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. Most of you are familiar with that. But let's go beyond that and say the whole Old Testament is realized in Christ, not just the specific prophecies. So, for example, Jesus is also the complete realization and fulfillment of God's law. God gave his law. Israel failed miserably. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. The Old Testament and the, and the law and the prophets also anticipated God's perfect righteousness. Jesus is God's perfect righteousness, didn't fail to keep the law, lived a sinless life. He is the righteousness from God, which qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice of atonement, right? Well, let's go to the sacrificial system. You have this sacrificial system, all these detailed laws in the Old Testament, how to kill animals and make atonement for sin. Anticipating, 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 anticipating realization in Christ, once for all, perfect sacrifice for sinners upon the cross. So you have prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. You have the righteousness of God anticipated fulfilled in Christ. You have the laws perfected in Christ. You have the sacrificial system that kept pointing to Jesus Christ. And there's a lot more in the Old Testament. You go, yeah, but what about the book of Proverbs? I mean, how, how's the book of Proverbs about Jesus? Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom of God, just pointing to him. Even, even Israel herself as a nation, a lot of the acts that happen within Israel point to Jesus. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in a beautiful and amazing way. So many times it keeps pointing to Christ, who is the fulfillment and realization of all the Old Testament. So are you kidding me? Is he here to get rid of the Old Testament? Why do you want to do that? 
It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. It all anticipates him. He is the reality. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's awesome. It's awesome. Of course he's not getting rid of it. But look what he says in 18. He just wants to hammer his point home even more. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Oh, so not only does he not want to do away with the law, but he's going to hold it up as legit until he accomplishes it, it all, even little small stuff. And he mentions here, uh, let's see, this iota, which, which is like the smallest letter of the alphabet, and a dot, which is the smallest mark distinguishing the letters, like the dot on our eye. He says, uh, none of that stuff's going to go away. It's all going to be fulfilled and accomplished in him until heaven and earth pass away. So until Jesus' kingdom comes in its fullness at his second coming, every single bit of the Old Testament from the smallest, smallest, smallest dot is going to be accomplished in him. None of it will pass away. None of it we can throw aside until it's accomplished in Christ. Which means for us that all the Old Testament, all of it, is valid for us. All of the Old Testament, everything we read there has benefit and is applicable for us. Remember the scriptures, what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It includes all the Old Testament, right? It's all inspired by God and profitable. We're not going to throw it out. But here's the catch. It's all profitable and it's all legitimate as interpreted through its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. What this means is that when you open your Old Testament and you start reading your Old Testament, put on your Jesus glasses. You've got to have them on. You've got to read the Old Testament through the lens of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Jesus. You have to read your Bibles backwards through the fulfillment in Christ. Practically speaking, it means you interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And you know, this is not easy. This is one of the most difficult topics you can possibly discuss within the church and try to understand is what is the relationship of the Old Testament for the Christian. So I'm not going to fix everything this morning. But I'm telling you, when you study your Old Testament, have those Jesus glasses on. And when you go to your ethos community this week, don't, don't get caught up in the little bitty details and let them freak you out and that you see in the law. Don't spend 30 minutes arguing whether or not you can get a tattoo. All right? Don't do that. Look at the bigger picture that the, all the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. And yes, there's time to understand it. It's like, well, what about this? What about that? Why don't we do that anymore? Why do we do this now? Those are good questions. Well, let's take, for example, the sacrificial system. Have you ever read in the Old Testament and see how much space the sacrificial system takes up? With all of its details, cut this, let this bleed, and all this crazy stuff, I've not done any of that. Am I, am I disobeying God? 
Why don't we do the sacrificial system? But if you put your Jesus glasses on, you say, ah, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. His once-for-all sacrifice was sufficient to take care of my sin, paid the penalty, made atonement. And so that's why we don't do the sacrificial system anymore. But does that mean that the verses within the Bible don't matter? No, but they do matter, and they have not passed away, because we see in these verses, we understand from the Old Testament, in these sacrificial verses of the system, we see there that sin deserves death. And if you want to make atonement for sin, you need death, and the right kind of death. And so it's still valid. And you can do the same understanding and study with the food stipulations. You, you read through the Old Testament. It's telling you, eat this, don't eat that, eat this, don't eat that, eat this, don't eat that. And you go, am I going to create some biblical diet? Don't do that, by the way. If you think, I'm going to create some system. And yet, we, we don't follow those food laws. And why? Because we read the Old Testament in light of its fulfillment in Christ. And we interpret the Old Testament through the grid of the New Testament. But it doesn't mean that the food stipulations are that don't matter. It doesn't mean that what they were trying to teach doesn't matter. There's still value in the sacrificial system. There's still value in understanding the food stipulations. There's still value there because they help us understand the role of Christ. And even though they have a different function now, we still can see and learn and glean and grow for what the Old Testament is teaching us and how it is fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus is definitely not throwing out the Old Testament. So here's the issue at hand. You're a Christian. You follow Christ. You're a kingdom follower of Jesus, right? So what does this mean for all of us under the reign of the king? For starters, it means that we're not going to be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We're not going to be like these Pharisees and the scribes. Because their interpretation of the Old Testament was very man-centered. And not only was it man-centered, it was focused on mere externals. What we'll see over the next few weeks as Jesus is handling the Old Testament through the Sermon on the Mount, we will see that Jesus' handling of the Word is so much higher and deeper. You see, the first two verses here of 17 and 18, I wanted you to get a grasp on the idea of anticipation and realization. For the next two verses and for the rest of chapter 5, I want you to think higher and deeper. Because when we come to the rest of chapter 5, do not think in your mind, Jesus is giving brand new commands that override the Old Testament. But what he's doing through his life and through his teaching is that he is elevating the Old Testament to a higher plane. Let me explain that. In his elevating the Old Testament to a higher plane, he is giving you the true intent of the law that was there all the time as opposed to the nitpicking quasi-obedience external adherence of the Old Testament uh, interpretation by the, by the Pharisees, right? He's going to give you the true intent of the law that was there all the time and show you its fulfillment in him. So he's going higher, higher, uh, taking the Old Testament to a higher plane in himself. But his teaching is also going to go deeper. 
which means it's going to cut you to the heart. It's going to convict you. He's not going to be content with just external adherence. He's going to talk about renovation of your heart, going right into your soul, what is going on inside as it is expressed in external obedience. And what we'll see through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is he's calling all of us to radical obedience that comes from the heart. So let's jump in, thinking higher and deeper as we go to verse 19. Let's go. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, we call least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He has this radical call to obedience and he warns his followers against relaxing even the least of these commandments. No, no part of God's word should be thrown aside and should be understood in light of its fulfillment of Christ and appropriately obeyed and taught. And I think within this verse, and I could be wrong, but I think within this verse, he is talking about those who are in his kingdom. He's talking about believers. And it seems to indicate here that there are some believers who could just relax the word of God and just kind of let it slide. That's no big deal. And teach others, that's no big deal, let it slide. And it seems like he's saying that they will be called the least. But whoever obeys the word and teaches the word, they'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And it's hard to understand that. I mean, is he talking about like a rank? Like we're going to talk, we're going to have different, get to heaven and say, oh, yeah, you're a higher rank, you're, you're a higher status than that person. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think so. But it, but it could be talking about just a, a reward idea. I don't know all the details of that, but just a, a commendation, a, a reward for holding to the word of God while on this earth, teaching others to hold to the word of God, and, and being faithful to God's word and, and receiving his, his commendation and being rewarded in the kingdom. But what I really want you to know is, because I, I don't know, we can argue about that, but I, I really don't know, we can debate that, but really look again at verse 19, that he's not just talking about an obedience, he's also talking about a teaching. So not just the obedience of the word that receives the affirmation, but it's also the teaching. Did you catch that? You're to be a teacher. All believers are to be teachers. They're to teach. Not, don't mean up here or in a Sunday school, but everybody is to teach the commands of God, the truth of God. Uh, go into the world and make disciples and teach. That's for you. If you're a believer, that's for you. And what I love to see within our church, I love it when I see intergenerational teaching going on. I love it when I see peer-to-peer teaching going on where you are spurring one another on to obey the commands of God. I, I love it when I see that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal teaching time, but just the individual, let's get together over coffee and let's teach one another, encourage one another to obey. There's two guys in this congregation who are hardworking and competent young men who get together to teach each other. You know, they're both gifted and they could climb high on the mountain of success. And the reality is, that's like most of you. You're just so competent. 
You're so educated. You can just go out and change the world or something. I mean, you really got these high goals and ideals. But when these two guys get together, I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of insight into what they do when they get together. They encourage one another to forsake their self-striving goals and to follow Jesus in obedience and the process of life. I mean, that, that's hard to do, right? Because we're surrounded by people in our environment where the, the point is shoot for the moon, go for your goals, do everything you can to pull it off. And these two competent guys get together and say, stop it. Stop with the self-striving goal setting and focus on the process of becoming more like Christ and obeying him. It's not that we throw out goals altogether, we don't do our job, or we don't study, or things like that. But the point is not that. The, pro- the point is the process of living life daily to the obedience of the commands of Jesus. Because you know what happens if you start focusing on your goals, and you make that your focus? You'll cut corners. You'll be impatient with people. You'll, in fact, ignore people. Because your focus is your goal, and you must accomplish it. And if anybody gets in your way, that's just too bad. So, like, this week, all right, I don't know what you got going on this week, but if I could guess, most of you have plans for this week that are good goals. Maybe at work you have to get a project done. At school you have to study for this particular subject for this particular test. If you're if you're if you ever you're a mom, you have goals in your long list. And chances are all of you have these goals leave little room for interruption, yeah? Like you better not be interrupted in your goals. You're focused on the goal rather than the process. But I can guarantee you, I can just guarantee you I'm not a betting man, but I will bet you. God loves you, He wants to conform you to Christ, He will interrupt you. He will. If you have kids, guarantee you, you will be interrupted. If you're at work, someone's going to be messing with you. If you're at school, you got this plan, something's going to happen. Your roommate's going to stay up all night and talk about something. That's why I believe that we can set goals, but the focus is not on the goals. The focus is on daily living in the process and being conformed to Christ and obeying his commands because you do not know tomorrow. You do not know what's going to happen You do not know if you're going to accomplish these goals or not, but you do know that you're alive today. You have a process to go through and conforming to Christ. You have people to interact with. You have commands to obey. And that's where we need to be. And that's why I think it's important to encourage one another, to teach one another, to say, that's great, you got goals, but that's not the focus. The focus is on the process of becoming more and more like Christ and obeying him. And then Jesus makes this statement in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, hello. Who's he talking to? I mean, he's not talking to the scribes and Pharisees because it's clear they're not in. And we thought his followers... Those who are seeking him as disciples, you know, I thought this was a kingdom sermon to them who were already in. But you remember, there's a third group there. It's called the crowd. 
And I can imagine his disciples up here, and he's like talking to them. He knows the crowd's there. And so I can just imagine Jesus kind of like just looking at them. And then when he says this, he looks to the whole crowd. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. I think he's talking to the crowd here. And can you imagine if you're in the crowd? There is no one that you know in your life that is more holy than the scribes and Pharisees. And here's this new teacher telling you, you ain't getting in. You're going to just perish because you, you, you don't have exceeding righteousness like them. Did you know there was a saying floating around in Israel? There was a saying floating around that said, if only two men go to heaven, surely one of them will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. That was a saying that was floating around. And then Jesus says, you've got to be greater than them. I mean, what despair would you have listening to that? That's like, whoa, that's pretty discouraging. So how, how are we who have the bigger picture? I mean, what do you want to do with this first? How are you going to think through this first? Here's the way I think you should proceed. We all know that the greater and exceeding righteousness is Jesus, right? We, we know that. Jesus is the greater righteousness who has fulfilled the Old Testament. But we have the verses in Romans, like Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We have Romans 3.21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we know that Jesus is the greater righteousness, but somehow by God's grace, miracle upon miracle, we get that righteousness attributed to us through faith. That's the gospel. It's not a righteousness that's gained when we try to outdo each other in our, in our good works and we've got to be better than the Pharisees and try to outdo them at their game. No, Jesus is like... Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Those who realize you're spiritually bankrupt, you have no resources, you're blessed. Blessed are not those who boast in their good works, but blessed are those who mourn over their sin. There's this repentance and brokenness where we can come to Christ empty-handed and realize that we get his righteousness through faith attributed to us where God views us as righteous in his eyes. It's not something we earn. Like uh, one of my favorite rapper is Lecrae, and I'm not going to rap to you right now, but he says, maybe some other time, but he says, if heaven ain't a gift, then I ain't getting in. That's absolutely right. It's not something we earn, this great righteousness. It's attributed to us. And the Apostle Paul, he got this. He said, all my works and all my religious works, and I'm going to kind of make it a, a rated G, uh, are junk. Just absolute junk. It's that I may King Christ be found in him and his righteousness alone through his life, death, and resurrection for us. Now, that's why we need to understand this greater righteousness. But get this. Did you know that along with this greater righteousness comes this transformation within us? 
that starts on the inside of this renovation of our heart and spills out on to the outside where we can see the commands of God and find our righteousness in Christ be changed by the Holy Spirit living in us and then somehow by God's grace we can now obey the commands of God including the radical ones that Jesus is giving here as he's expanding on the Old Testament. Did you know that I really think Jesus is saying that we will have this greater righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees? Why? Because it's just a shell game for them. It's all, it's all external. It's like a little external game that they're doing. But those who follow Christ have this radical inside-out renovation job going on where we're being conformed to Christ and we can actually obey his commands radically. Oh, you, we had to cover these four verses before we go to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount because when we go to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you may say, impossible. I can't do that. I can't change. If you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you've had a heart job done on you where your heart has been circumcised, your eyes have been opened, and your ears have been opened. There is something going on within you, a renovation of your heart that will spill out into obedience. So here's what you're going to hear in the coming weeks. It, it is radical. Jesus is going to say, if you're in conflict with someone and there's not, you know, there's been no reconciliation, you can move to take steps to reconcile with them. Not because you're an awesome peacemaker, because you fulfill an awesome, you follow an awesome God who has made peace with you through Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. And for those of us who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, we can now take small steps of reconciliation with others because we've had this renovation of the heart, this inside-out transformation. And in the coming weeks, two weeks from today, Jesus is going to say, you need to deal with lust. You need to be radical in dealing with lust. And some of you, lust is consuming your life. It is your God. It has a grip on you. And you think there is no way that you can get out of lust. And Jesus is going to say, you need to be so aggressive. You need to be poking out your eye. You need to be cutting off your hand. And you're going to say, Jesus, I can't deal with lust. It's, it's too big for me. But I'm going to remind you from the word of God that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You've had an inward transformation, an inside-out renovation of the heart where you can see inside of you and you know in your mind right now that Jesus is greater and more beautiful and more powerful than anything in this world can offer. And you can start moving out of lust because of what Christ has done. And in three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, we're going to be talking about all different types of stuff from not pleasing people to not worrying about tomorrow to not judging others. And you think, well, I can't change any of those. And I'm going to keep reminding you about this inside-out transformation. Christ is higher, and he cuts deeper in our heart, and he is sufficient. And what we'll see about storing up treasures in heaven, you'll say, oh, I can't store up treasures in heaven. I can't give my money to God. No way. And if I do, I'll put on a show about it. Or if I, if I do, I'm going to do it reluctantly. And we'll say, no, no, no. There's been a change that has happened in your heart. 
where you'll see you can store up treasures in heaven because that is where your true treasure is seated at the right hand of the Father. We got to take these four verses and run through the rest of the New Testament. Realize that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. He is our sufficiency. And as we reflect back on the Old Testament, we read it all through the grid of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And it's a righteousness that clothes us and makes us acceptable to the Father, but along with it is also this renovation of the heart, inside-out transformation, where we can walk in His commands and have a radical obedience. Let's pray. Lord, if we despair from your word and the demands of it, may we look to the one who has met the demands on our behalf, Jesus. And as we reflect on Christ and what he has done in clothing us in his righteousness, may we step out in the obedience of faith to your commands and believe and take the small steps of reconciliation. Take the small steps of fleeing lust and not a hint of immorality. Take the small steps of loving our enemies and the small steps of not bringing attention to ourselves, but to you alone. I ask, Lord, as we are on this radical path of obedience and relationship with you, that we would encourage one another, that we would teach one another, and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And be teaching us, Lord, what matters rather than just shooting for our personal self-striving goals. May we ask you to conform us to you. And may our eyes and our goal be you and pleasing you. So over the coming weeks, Lord, as we gather together on Sunday mornings and throughout our groups, do a renovation in our hearts more and more. In Christ's name, amen.